0: Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 125. My name is Arioban Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkin, our Father, our King, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for shaping the way that we um, uh, interpret and understand uh, the topics of the Bible. Uh, We don't have a complete understanding. We admit that but to the degree that your Holy Spirit is leading us and guiding us and helping us to be conformed to the image of Messiah, we trust that that is a perfect revelation. And so we strive to be like Messiah, uh, we strive to be holy. We strive to be um, forgiving of one another and, and walking in holiness and obedient to the Father's ways. Help us, Lord, in this endeavor. Continue to raise us up and strengthen us. Continue to give us a hope beyond hope. Help us to continue to rely on you and to trust in you to provide for us and to protect us during these very, extremely difficult days in which we live in. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Shame Yeshua. Amen. Welcome, everyone, to my live internet studies. I thought I'd keep the prayer, opening prayer, really short this time. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi, and I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilatun Harvest, which is in Thornton, Colorado. As you're looking at your screen right now, I've got our website pulled up, www.graftedin.com. Head on over to our website and avail yourself of all the studies there and take particular note of the uh, recent sermon series that you can see on my screen right now that I'm highlighting, Pastor Mark's picture, you can see there as well. And um, if you can't make it out to our sermon, our services live, which are on Saturday afternoon, well then be sure to catch our live streams online week after week. And since you've got internet access, why don't you head on over to my own Torah teaching website as well when you get a chance. It's at www.tetzetorah.com. Let me spell that out for you. It's spelled t-e-t-z-e t-o-r-a-h.com. And from the homepage, as you can see on my screen right now, I've got a cluster of links right there for you. Just avail yourself of all the resources. Um, most of what you're looking at when you click on it is available in web format, meaning it's online what I call HTML. It's also available in PDF format, so you can print it out and um, take it offline, read it that way. Um, or if you need to copy and paste it into your own studies, you can do that way. Uh, Likewise, um, most of the studies are going to include some sort of audio content, like an mp3 file that you can download or listen to on your computer. So it's iTunes podcast. And then finally, I'm turning a lot of my content into YouTube representations, either short, little like average five-minute videos, little snippets, what we call video shorts, or... Uh, longer videos as well. So just avail yourself of all the resources there. Likewise, head on over to my YouTube channel when you get a chance. You can find me online there at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate's Torah Ministries. And, um, I just invite you to, uh, again, um, avail yourself of all the resources that are available there. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel, and that way you'll keep you in the loop. Make sure you click the little bell for notifications. That'll notify you whenever I upload new videos. Uh, hit hit the thumbs up icon if you like what you're watching. Hit the thumbs down if you don't like it. I'm fine with that. But try to leave me comments if you don't like something and let me know why you didn't like it. That helps me out. It keeps me challenged as to um, what I'm saying that perhaps is missing the mark. And then lastly, make sure you hit the little arrow that shows that you can share the content with everyone else, right? Share it with your friends and family member. That's the best way to keep us all in the loop. These are the live internet studies. And let me just read through some of the um, announcements real quick, what I call the the details or logistics. As I mentioned earlier, this is episode number 125. The recording date for this live internet study meeting is January 23rd, 2021 USA date. Our meeting times are from Saturday evenings 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. So wherever you're at in the world, set your clock against that particular um, clock and you'll be sure to be able to meet with us. We meet for about an hour and the first segment is given over to the 30-minute study entitled Romans 14 Unplugged, Feasts and Fasts and Food Oh my, we're in part 43 tonight. And the second 30-minute segment is given over to the study entitled Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity, Paper 2, Yahweh and Yeshua, part 60 tonight. We'll watch a little YouTube video like we normally do. Uh, This one's like super short, as I was looking at it earlier this week. It's on the verse James 2.18, the true Torah is the walk of of faith. And we'll watch that video uh, at the very end of our study tonight. Alright, um, and as I always mention just briefly uh, if you'd like to join us for our live studies, go to my website at tateshator.com drop all the way down to the very bottom of any of the web pages, to that black section at the very end. Look at the little two button, the two buttons over there. The one on the left is my YouTube channel if you click on that. And the one on the right is my email address click that button like you see right now there's a little red arrow pointing where there's this email button flashing on the screen click that icon uh, or click that uh, image that link there and it'll send me an email and tell me you'd like to join the live internet studies and i would be more than happy to send you the live study skype link we use skype here i'll send you the skype link so you can join us uh week after week during the live skype studies. you don't even really need skype installed on your computer or you don't need a skype account but if you um click the the skype link then if you're using a desktop or laptop computer your browser should actually do the connection for you so there's no additional software or subscription needed to do all that but uh, skype is definitely the platform that we're using until i find a different platform that's going to allow me to uh, allow people to chat and things like that one that's within my budget and things like that so and speaking of budget, if the Lord is blessing you to be in a position where you can bless others around you, you've got some extra, um, who does these days, but if you've got a little bit of extra and God's laying on your heart to bless me as a ministry, well then here's the way to do that. This is the mechanism. The little yellow donate button that you see on my screen right now will allow you to donate securely using PayPal and a credit card or a bank account. So if, if God's blessing you and you want to share with me, I'd be delighted to, <laughs> to um, receive that blessing. And I don't have anything I can give you in return by way silver and gold like peter said to the man who's crippled right silver and gold have i none but just like peter did say to him but such as i have and i can speak as a bible teacher such as i have give i thee and all i can share with you is what god's laying on my heart and the blessings that he's been blessing me with as i study torah and i believe that the holy spirit's showing me different things so i want to just bless you in that manner as you're blessing me with your finances then i can bless you in return with the uh, uh, my uh, uh, bible studies my torah studies okay all right, be blessed if you seek to be a blessing to others. All righty. Let's turn to the Romans 14 unplugged Feasts and Fast and Food. Oh my. And before we get uh, into um, reading through some of Mark Nano's book, uh, The Mystery of Romans, tonight, I wanted to, to remind us of the position that we're working from, which is um, how are we to um, interact with Paul's representation in this part of his letter, Romans 14? Um, who is he talking to? Who was he writing to? Who are the weak in faith? Who are the brothers? And that's the, the discussion we're having right now. This is occupying most of the um, uh, uh, effort in my study at this point in time, because that understanding of who the recipients of the letter are is going to actually influence the way we Uh, uh, interpret the letters both from Paul's day and the way we implement and interpret it for our modern day churches. So let me look at the conclusions of the section where we talked about who are the weak in faith and read this for you one more again, one more time real quick before we read uh, Mark Nanus. this is on the paper, uh, in the paper uh, that I have uh, online, the uh, Romans 14 and study, which is available on my website at tatesator.com. Let me read down through this real quick. We've studied this in the past. This is just kind of a re- refresher, but uh, I want to give you this right up front so that you can understand where I'm going with this idea of who are the weak from the Christian perspective and who are the weak from the Messianic, Jewish, or alternate perspective that I'm working from. Here's what I had to say earlier. What we have learned by perusing different Christian and Messianic perspectives on the identity of the weak and strong, what have we learned? We discover that mainstream Christian perspectives on the identity of the weak and strong are heavily influenced by the historic Christian bias that can rightly be described as a law-free gospel. This is the position that you're going to find if you attend any average Christian church, particularly an evangelical one, or maybe in really particularly uh, Roman Catholic or, or Greek Orthodox, really Across the board, this is the traditional tr- Christian perspective on who are the weak in faith, and who are they? In this view, the weak and strong are two groups of people in the church, church uh, Paul's day, right? Both of whom are Christian and yet one feels a compulsion to keep the law of Moses, that would be the weak, right, in the traditional Christian view, and one feels no such compulsion, which would be the strong in the traditional Christian perspective. Again, I'm not trying to slam this perspective in stating the facts on what this perspective is. I'm just trying to alert us to the fact that this is the historic, popular opinion on who are the weak in faith and its implications for both Jews of Paul's day as well as believing Jews of today. Let me keep reading. According to this view... The one I'm describing, Paul, one of the non-compulsive strong, must caution these two groups to avoid passing judgment on one another since each must be, quote, fully convinced in his own mind, end quote, as to what is the right lifestyle to lead as a Christian, right? Isn't that the way that um, we interact with the passage for the most part? What is more, in this view, since it is assumed that Paul must have also abandoned compulsion towards at least the ceremonial aspects of the Torah when he came to faith in Yeshua, Then it only follows that he would obviously side with the strong, that the weak should not remain in their weakness, but instead in time join the walk of the strong, where instead of focusing on special days and select food and drink, all who are strong and declare like Paul, quote, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So once again, we're describing a position that from a modern Christian perspective is the idea that a person who's a Christian need not be tied to the law of Moses and all of its ceremonial and civil aspects. The moral parts of the law are still um, uh, in force for a Christian. You know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, and those types of things. But those ceremonial civil aspects of the law, such as the Sabbath days, the you know, keeping kosher, uh, observing the festivals, all of that has been swallowed up in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Um, the way most Christians describe it, we would say that Paul, um, taught that we're no longer under the law. We're under grace. Uh, we're under the law of Christ. Um, the law fulfilled its purpose. It had bookends like we read about in the book of Gal- Galatians. It was, it was, it was in place until a certain point or Christ is the end of the law, Romans 10, four in the most popular versions, um, or, uh, Jesus fulfilled it so we don't have to do it anymore. Like read Matthew chapter 5, um, 17 through 20, according to most popular understandings of that passage. So either way you look at it, we're talking about a Paul who would not want Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, he would not want Christians, and this is the popular opinion, he would not want Christians being encumbered by the um, the, the strictures and the, the minutia of law, particularly the Sabbaths, festivals. We're, we're free from all that. And it's this freedom that Paul wants to express for us as Christians. And even though we still have people who would want to hold on to those old parts of the law, we as the strong aren't allowed to judge them. We can only pray for them and help them along to hopefully and prayerfully uh, help them see that they too are free from all of that and they need, to be, they need to basically grow up in their faith so that they can be strong like the rest of us and eventually realize that we're free in Messiah. We don't have to be um, enamored by all the details of Moses' legislation and things like that. So this is the popular position and the way to interpret this passage. There are manifold problems with that position as I teach in my own studies. Um, let me just uh, read what this other paragraph as well. Um, I state, indeed, if according to the traditional Gentile Christianity, Paul abandoned his to our keeping stance in favor of becoming all things to all men. Um, compare from First Corinthians nine nineteen through twenty three, a position that, in my opinion, as a messianic Jewish believer in Yeshua, suspiciously always seems to default back into some semblance of a. Torahless, non Jewish form of Gentile Christianity, right? You ever notice that? That when the traditional popular opinion on who Paul was and what he taught regarding Torah, whenever you hear that position taught, when we talk about the one new man or um, the law of Messiah or something like that, suspiciously it always ends up being described as something that doesn't have any semblance of. Jewish lifestyle, or Judaism, or Jewishness, or, in other words, it's kind of washed of all of its um, uh, Jewish flavor, it's kind of uh, uh, rinsed of all of that, and all that's washed away so that we end up with kind of a sterilized version of the Gospel and and the Bible that is not only palatable to non-Jews, but devoid of any connection to um, Jesus or his Jewishness, Paul or his Jewishness, or the Jewishness of the apostles or or the first early church or anything like that. We kind of wipe all that stuff away. To say it in a different way, I've often heard it taught that and this, this comes from well-meaning Christians. I'm not judging them for their positions. I'm simply um, just trying to understand and ascertain why this position is so popular among many well-meaning Christians. The idea that um, if you try to keep the Torah the way we say that Paul would have kept it, or try to keep the Torah the way Jesus kept it, it looks too Jewish, right? If I keep Sabbath, it's going to make me look like a Jew. If I keep circumcision and, and festivals and kosher-keeping my Christian friends and family members are going to think I'm a Jewish wannabe. And so I've often heard it taught in certain Christian circles, not all, not across the board, so I'm not trying to judge anyone, but I'm just commenting what I've encountered in my travels as a Messianic Jewish man, is that um, uh, those parts of the Torah really make you look too Jewish. And so that's one of the reasons why we want to steer clear of those things as Gentile Christians, is because it, it, it smacks of Jewishness. And... Wow, gee, that's an unfortunate way of looking at it. I would hope that that's not the position that you're coming to as well. Uh, I repudiate that idea. I think that when you keep Torah, it's supposed to make you not look like a Jew, but it's supposed to make you look like a covenant member. That's the way I, I interact with keeping Torah. But we can talk about that a different day. But I go on to say that the, the position that I'm describing naturally follows that Paul would not wish to have strong um Christian community members at Rome, be they Jewish or Gentile, retaining any loyalty to ceremonial aspects of the ostensibly canceled, the supposedly canceled law of Moses, right? Um, We don't want Paul teaching his members to go back under the law as if being obligated to keep the law is a bad thing, right? Uh, But according to your average historical Christian interpretation, again, I have to keep clarifying that I'm not saying that all of Christianity has held this, this position. Thankfully, there are a good number of uh, Christians today who are rejecting the idea that Paul taught a law-free gospel. They're um, recoiling at the idea that Paul um, would teach that the law would be done away with for believers in Messiah or something to that effect. And so we have a growing number of uh, Torah-respectful Christians, Jews and Gentiles alike, but um, particularly a number of Gentiles, who are rethinking and allowing Paul to speak for himself. Let's keep reading. In such a scenario, such law-keeping Jews and Gentiles, I add, must be weak in faith. Right? There's our terminology from uh, Romans. The idea that weak in faith, as evidenced by their continuing dependence upon shadows instead of relying fully upon the finished work of Messiah, the Body who is casting those shadows in the first place. So that's again the popular opinion: is that if I'm going to hold to Sabbath and kosher and festivals and all of these other things from the law of Moses. And if the law of Moses is a shadow of the law of Messiah, then doesn't it stand a reason that to hold on to the law of Moses is to hold on to the shadow. And since the shadow is deficient when compared to the actual body casting the shadow the body being Messiah himself, then doesn't it stand to reason using this line of logic that I'm describing that to hold onto the shadow is a deficient position? It's a sign of weakness. Yes, if we were to describe all of the factors using the terminology and describe the line of logic the way I'm describing it now, in this kind of simplistic straw man um, logic that I'm using, then yes, we could say that this would be a, a, a sign of weakness and something that Paul would certainly not want his um, readers to fall back to. So I think I'll stop reading from my own commentary there. Let's jump straight over to uh, Mark Nanos and pick up the reading. This is from his book. I'm going to flash a picture on the screen for the, those of you who are watching this YouTube video uh, of the book um, Mark Nanos, The Mystery of Romans, Black Cover, Red Writing, Fortress, press, I think, put it together. It's it's easily 20 years or more older, but the book still has a lot that it can offer, and it's going to challenge us in this idea of rethinking who were the audience in Paul's purview, and why does it matter for us today? If Paul was not teaching that the weak in faith were Gentile and Jewish, particularly Jewish Christians who were still keeping Torah, then who was the weak? Who were the weak? Who was this weak person in Paul's mind? And why does it matter for us today? So he's got this chapter, Nanos does, in chapter 3, a paragraph heading entitled, The Weak Were Definitely Jews, But Were They Christians? And this goes along with, who is the brother? If the brother is a brother Christian, then everyone in Paul's writings were Christians, right? Paul's only writing to Christians. Then... He's definitely speaking of the weakened faith as Jews who are Christians but are still keeping Torah and therefore their weakness is, is directly connected to their proclivity for keeping Torah because they are brother Christians. However, I purport that if the brothers is broad enough to term brothers, not in every case, please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say here not in every case does Paul use the phrase brother the Greek phrase Adelphos or adelphon or adelphoi or something depending on what uh, case the Greek is in um this Greek term brother does not always mean a Christian it it usually does as far as I can tell from my research it usually does context demands who he's talking about but there are some cases I believe where Paul or we could make the case that Paul's trying to get his audience 2,000 years ago to understand that Jews and Gentiles were brought together in the same faith community, which in Paul's day would include the synagogue community, the existing synagogue community that had not yet um, kicked all of the Gentile God-fearers out of their midst just yet, or all of the Christian Jews out just yet. There were still some open doors, not a lot, I understand there was persecution going on right away, but... There was enough dialogue going on that Paul could still find an opportunity to reach out to the synagogue and travel there and approach them with the gospel. We read about that all throughout the book of Acts. To the point that Paul's faith community of brother Israelites would also apply to a limited degree to the Gentiles being brought into this covenant relationship with God. And so when we look at this word brother, we're trying to ascertain as to whether or not covenant brother can fit in those scenarios, not all of them, but sometimes, to the the degree that it would cause your Gentiles to be aware of Jews who don't yet believe in Jesus, perhaps they're the weak, and the weakness is tied to their inability to see Jesus as Messiah as of yet, not tied to their preference for keeping Torah. Notice the big difference in the definition and and, and uh, connection between this phrase weak. So, let's let Nanos uh, describe this for us. He writes, quote, From the descriptions we've reviewed thus far, is it necessary to conclude that the weak were Christians? Everything that has been said about them, or for that matter ostensibly to them, could be said along Christological lines of Jews who did not believe in Jesus as the Christ or to put it anachronistically and without the nuanced sensitivity Pauls developing here in to say non-Christian Jews. So, Nano says let's consider the following points and I think there's about 4 of them. Point number 1. The statements that appear directed to the weak when I mean, we're talking just about Romans and particularly Romans 14 but the book of Romans as a whole. I don't I'm not trying to say that we can apply the hermeneutic principle that I'm describing for you now across the board in all of Paul's writings, but to the degree that it applies at least to Rome, it captures our interest because we're trying to determine the, 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 the exact meanings of this chapter, chapter 14. Is Paul telling those weak in faith, you know, the weakness, is he trying to say that the weakness is their, their preference for keeping Torah? And if so, should they grow up and leave that weakness behind, which would equate with leaving a following of Torah behind. Nano says, The statements that appear directed to the weak, not to judge the strong as though their, their practices were unacceptable to God, recall 14, 3, 3, eight could be said to non-Christian Jews by Paul, a representative still attending, deeply concerned with, and welcome to address, the synagogue. So, he's trying to let us know, this is Nanos the author, the historian, Jewish historian, that Paul could still be trying to reach out to these unbelieving Jews. Although, I'm sure that Paul is aware that his letter probably is not going to hold any authoritative weight in the synagogue, and that's probably not the point. His letter is going to be owned and and read and and cherished by the smaller uh, Christianities that are springing up here and there and everywhere. This is true, but to the degree that there are still open avenues of dialogue between the synagogue and the the Christianities that are being formed in the first century among the, the Judaisms right the christianities were subsets of a judaism of of a form of a messianic Judaism is what I would describe it, but to the degree that we're going to have dialogue between um uh open dialogue between uh Uh, Christian Jews and non-Christian Jews, then Paul's letter bears relevancy to us. Uh, Nanos continues, And that is precisely how non-Christian Jews would have regarded the claims of the strong if they maintained that as Gentiles they were equal co-participants with the Jews in the blessings of God without maintaining even the minimal requirements of Jewish law and customs that Gentiles had always practiced when attaching themselves to the God of Israel and in the diaspora to the synagogue." What Nanos is trying to remind us of is that in Paul's day, before Christianity was, um, was revealed uh, or uh, before it, it had become an issue, a force to be reckoned with by the Judaisms, right before there was this explosion in, in Jerusalem at Acts chapter 2 with the outpouring of the Spirit to Jewish people and then later on to the surrounding nations and bringing them in. So what what Christians would call the birth of the church, right? Before all that came along, the Gentiles in Paul's day would have been attracted to the synagogues. Uh, Israel's God, the monotheistic faith that was being um, taught Um, the the representation of Torah observance and all of that, and with the influx of Gentiles into the synagogue life, there was the imposing of what Nanos describes and other historians also recognize as the minimal requirements of Jewish law and customs that Gentiles had practiced, what we call the righteous Gentile. So he was brought the Gentile was brought into proximity to um, Jewish synagogues, Jewish synagogue life, religious Jews, religious Judaism. He wasn't yet A convert to Judaism, he was still what we might call a righteous Gentile, or um, a God-fearer, or some other technical term. But at the very least, he was required to take on a measure of um, protocol that would allow his uh, lifestyle to be acceptable within Jewish circles, so that he's not practicing, um, you know, flagrant um, forms of of. Paganism, or, or you know, just not blatantly thumbing his nose at Israel's laws, or, the, or the God of Israel, the people of Israel, things like that. There were certain um, um, laws, bylaws, uh, uh, halacha is what we're talking about, that he had to take on as a Jew. As, I'm sorry, as a Gentile, and this was described as the righteous, Jew, uh, righteous uh, uh, Gentile. Nanos continues. Scroll up a little bit. Non-Christian Jews would have been indeed. Uh, would have indeed been provoked to question and even to blaspheme, verse 16, the alleged God of these Gentiles' claims. So that's a very important um, sentence there. If the Gentiles in Paul's day would have simply um, like, uh, uh, forced their way into the synagogue communities and said, we are the new people of God. We don't have to be righteous Gentiles. We don't have to keep Torah. We're free from all that. We're not going to v- submit to all of that slavery. That's all bondage. Paul, Paul teaches us that Jesus set us free from all that. And um, we're the people of God. And we're righteous in God's eyes. And we're going to heaven. Oh, and by the way, these Gentiles would have added, we can do all of that without having to be Jewish. We're not going to submit to any proselyte ceremony, conversion, policy, whatever. God's just going to accept us as Gentiles. All of that would have been a black eye in the Jewish community. And it would have been a black eye in the gospel. Right, because it would have erected um, unnecessary walls of separation between uh, Gentiles coming into the gospel message and Jews who are seeking the gospel, Jews who are um, uh, investigating the claims of Jesus' messiahship. Right. So, and it also would have provoked Jews to, to a kind of jealousy that would push them further away from the good news rather than attract them towards the good news. That's what we're trying to look at here. Let's continue with Nano's book here. Indeed. Sorry about that. Let's try that again. Indeed, if we assume that the early Christian Gentiles in Rome associated with the synagogue, then we can immediately identify the response of the weak as the Jewish response. Then I might add non Christian Jewish response to Christian Gentile claims if they included resistance to the established halacha for Gentiles associating with the synagogue. That is, if they concluded the assertion that they need not respect the Noahide commandments in whatever exact format they may have taken at this time. In Rome. So what Nanos is trying to alert us to the fact is that um, Paul is writing from the vantage point of realizing that the Gentiles need not change their nationality or ethnicity in order to be counted as genuine and lasting covenant members in God's economy. They don't need to take on Judaism as an ethnicity, as a form, as an identity marker, uh, the, the way that circumcision was being wielded in Paul's day among certain jewish authorities the gentiles need not undergo that change of identity in order for god to to receive them into his very presence indeed the only prerequisite to be counted as genuine and lasting righteous in god's eyes this is what paul teaches is that the gentile needs to reckon with who is the person of messiah yeshua who is the holy spirit who truly is god Understanding that aspect of identity is paramount in Paul's writings. Bringing one into a right relationship with God through faith in Messiah Yeshua is the way to be counted as genuinely and lastingly righteous in Paul's opinion. And that's what he's going to preach as the genuine gospel. However, to the degree that these Gentiles also need to respect the... Um, opinions of the Judaism's that they're going to be interacting with by taking on a form of righteousness that is described by the Torah, but yet at the same time not uh, does not in, uh, uh, inness- unnecessarily encumber the your average Gentile Christian with with every amount of do's and don'ts, do's and don'ts. Right? We need some place to start. We need a place to to allow the two peoples to come to uh, a form of. Of common ground where they can begin to work with one another as two communities that are being brought together as one new man, uh, as each one uh, understands and, and, and identifies who is Messiah to them personally. Uh, recall the um, apostolic decree that was given in the in the book of Acts where uh, the letter was put out. About this is a righteous behavior that we want Gentile Christians to begin to conform to. They don't have to take on the whole um, burden of the law, if you want to call it that, call it a burden, but they at least need to adopt these anti pagan practices so that they can begin to relate to um, the, the religious Jewish community. So let's keep reading uh, Nanos here. Um, I will come back to this issue later, Nano says, but here is important to note that the weak need not be Christian Jews to have the kind of association Paul understands to be taking place in Rome between uh, Gentiles and Jews. He continues The statements that appear to be directed to the weak may have been provided to frame Paul's weighty instructions to the strong. They were only at the beginning not to judge with contempt the one who hears, I'm sorry, the one who eats, 14.3, and possibly at the close to welcome Gentiles who glorify God for his mercy. Um, Nanos uh, uh, thinks that most of Paul's uh, um, statements are uh, directed to the strong but a few of them are directed to the weak. Um, the idea that the weak wouldn't, wouldn't, you know, may have thought that, well, Paul's not really one of us anymore. He's abandoned Judaism for this, this strange view of Judaism known as Christianity so why should we even listen to him if he tells us not to judge uh, those Gentiles? You know, the idea that how much weight did his letter have among the synagogue uh, uh, attendees and things like that? And so we recognize that most of Paul's letter is addressed to the strong, but there are parts of it that are addressed to the weak, and that's what we're trying to, to look at. In... Nanos continues, they were only at the beginning not to judge with contempt the one who eats, and possibly at the close to welcome Gentiles who glorify God for his mercy. Um, But most of Paul's instructions that are otherwise clearly intended to change the opinions and practices of the strong. Now, I bring that up because isn't that interesting? That Paul is primarily writing to Christians, right? To brothers who are Christian brothers. Um, To use that understanding of the word brother, they're in a limited scope. And to the degree that Paul is trying to change their opinions and practices, then we can begin to rethink the way that Paul's trying to get us to, uh, we the strong, get us to view the weak. In other words, obviously we shouldn't be judging them, but can we even judge their practices as well? Not just judging them as, as, as People. Let's keep reading Mark Nano's, and this will make sense a little bit more later. I will can come back to this point later when discussing Paul's instructions, like Nano says. Point number two, Paul regards non-Christian Jews as his brethren throughout this letter. Now that's a given, and most Christians are going to agree with me there, that Paul regards non-Christian Jews as his brethren throughout this letter. The challenge is: does Paul want Gentile Christians to also regard non-Christian Jews as their brethren? And if the answer is yes, in what capacity are these non-Christian Jews fellow brothers to Christian Gentiles? What is the brotherhood relationship? That's what we're going to look at here. One of the most direct examples is at 9, 3-5, through five, speaking of Paul. Now, of course, again, I say this is a given because most Christian commentators and pastors are going to agree with me. Of course, Paul talked about fellow Jews, whether they were Gentiles, I'm sorry, whether they are believers or not, as brethren... And what he meant is their fellow fellow Jews, their brother Israelites. So there's not a lot of disagreement in this point so far. Where is where he explains his um his commitment. Um, I think that's um, pathos or is it pathos? Give me a second. I always mispronounce this word. I'm gonna look up the the pronunciation. Bear with me. It is pathos. Give me a second here. Ah, okay, it's pathos. I mispronounced it last time. P A T H O S. Pathos. All right. Paul's pathos, right? His it's a quality that evokes um, kind of pity or sadness, pitifulness. Um he's sorrowful for uh someone. He's 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 his heart is wrenching because of their their unbelief in Messiah. So that's what I mean by his um uh, his pay, his pathos. You can hear my little dictionary definition. Did you hear that? Did you guys hear that? Pathos. Pathos. Right. All right. <laughs> All right. So Paul has his pathos for Jews who don't do not yet believe in Jesus as the Christ of Israel. So look at this in, in his letter here. Paul says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, whose overall God blessed forever. Amen. Interesting that Paul would say all of those things about unbelieving Jews, unbelieving in Messiah Jews, non-Christian Jews, right? That's that's a lot of pathos, right? That's a lot of love and and sympathy and sorrowfulness, for this uh, particular people group. Let's keep reading. Um, maybe we can get down through one more uh, paragraph, and then we'll I'll call it quits for this part. We'll pick this up again next week if we need to. Uh, Nanus continues, but does Paul regard non-Christian Jews as brethren to the strong in Rome who consistently primarily, who consist primarily of Christian Gentiles? That's the question on the table. When we're talking about brothers and the weak in faith, yes, the unbelieving Jews, the non-Christian Jews are brothers to Paul, and we would make that, uh, uh, that natural association because Paul's a Jew, Paul's an Israelite, therefore he's talking about fellow Israelites or fellow Jews. But are these non-Christian Jews to be regarded by Paul as brethren to the strong who consist primarily of Christian Gentiles? That's the challenge, and that's the question. Let's see what Nanos has to say. Certainly. short to the point he just says certainly right that's nanos opinion okay nanos continues conceptually let, let him unpack his answer conceptually paul did not see faith in jesus christ as a break with israel and his fellow jews of the diaspora and that's true he certainly had not left the Jewish faith. That's true as well. Jews were the historical community of the one God, whether they believed in Jesus as the Christ or not. And that's also true. Notice what Paul said earlier about whose belong, the covenants, the promises, and, and the commandments, and things like that. Those are all present tense verbs. Thus, to be a Christian, whether Jew, which would be natural to Paul, or Gentile, which was a wonderful new reality that had always been part of Israel's eschatological expectation, would have immediately made one a brother to all Jews, whether they were Christians or not. We see this through the illustration of the doe and the olive tree of chapter 11, where Paul clarifies just how how necessarily the faith of Christian Gentiles is inextricably linked with historic Israel. He continues, and we see it dramatically in Paul's summary statements of 15.7-13, uh, where he quotes from various scriptures to demonstrate that the eschatological, eschatological salvation of the Gentiles, and thus natural of Israel, has come... For the Gentiles are now praising God in the midst of the congregation of the Jews as they praise God. And I think I'll close with this bevy of quotes and we'll pick this up again next week. Notice how Paul in Romans, this is in chapter 15, which we're not looking at uh, just yet. Maybe someday we will. But notice how Paul, speaking of Yeshua, brings in these quotes from the Tanakh, the Old Testament, to show how that because of what Yeshua, the servant of God, but a fellow Jew, what because of the stance that Yeshua has taken Yeshua can look now at the people that God is bringing into his family meaning the Gentiles, and Yeshua can speak the praises of his Father God in heaven because of God's plan of salvation to the Gentiles. And so the voice of the prophet is spoken as if Yeshua himself is speaking it. Therefore, I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles. Yeshua speaking. This was originally the prophet speaking, but now it's cast in the language as if Yeshua, the servant of God, the Jewish servant of God, is speaking to God his Father. Therefore, I, Yeshua says, will give praise to thee, my Father God, among the Gentiles. And I, Yeshua, will sing to thy name. And then Yeshua speaks again, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Of course, this is the voice of the prophet, uh, who is also Jewish, speaking to Israel. But notice that his people here primarily includes believers who've been brought into relationship with god through messiah but at a broad level it simply is addressed to israel his people praise the lord all you gentiles and let all the peoples praise him all the gentiles praise him there shall come let me scroll down here or scroll up whatever you want to call it there shall come the root of jesse of course that's yeshua and he who arises to rule over the gentiles in him shall the gentiles hope so what we're going to look at here is that there's a there are features in Paul's writing, and we'll look at this next week. It's a little teaser for you. There are features in Paul's letter that indicate that Paul was writing to Jews as strong, I'm sorry, Gentiles as strong, believers as strong. But at the same time, he understood that his, his faith community, which included natural Israel, even though they hadn't been brought into excuse me, brought into a relationship with Yeshua, yet they were nevertheless still continued to be spoken of using terminology that identified them as the people of God. That's really what's at stake here. If brother only and exclusively and always means Christian, and if weak refers to someone who's a Christian only, but yet still has a continued preference for keeping Torah, then basically Paul gave up on the Jewish community, and you should too, right? That's what's at stake here, I guess. Paul didn't consider the Jews his brothers, right? That's the position that's that's popular among uh, teaching teachers today. It's a, again, it's a position that I'm rejecting. But if that's really the way we're to understand brother, brethren and brothers and uh, the weak in faith— then really it amounts to um, an abandonment of the Jewish people as a people that are important to God and important in God's economy. I guess replacement theology is accurate. I guess supersessionism is correct. And I guess dispensationalism has, um, uh, has the right approach. But, of course, you know that I don't take that position. And we'll look at more of this next week. So once we turn to page 112, we'll see that there's a list here of the way Paul talks to Christians and the way he talks to non-Christian Jews. And we'll see some overlap. But we'll look at that next week, okay? And then also next week we'll look at um, another quote from uh, Tim Haig's book, The Letter Writer, where he talks about rethinking the shape of the church. But we'll do all that next week. Let's turn now to Exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, and we'll take the last twenty minutes or so of our study to look at this. Fifteen minutes or so. This one actually won't be very long. As I was researching all the verses for this week, um, they're not extremely difficult to uh, understand the position. So let me take the first five minutes. of uh, This is usually these videos are usually breaking up in, broken up into five short uh, video. Uh, uh, Video shorts that I upload to YouTube uh, and then I put them all together as one long video uh, at the end of the week so um, in part one of five let me take the first uh, f- I think like five or six minutes and let me read by review uh, something that I brought uh, up almost a year ago I'm looking at my schedule of when I brought presented this and this is just a, r- a review of when we're approaching this idea of Trinity. And we're talking about how mysterious it is, we have to remind ourselves and be reminded that the nomenclature, that the verbiage, that the wording of the Bible was penned by authors who had a Hebraic worldview. And as such, it doesn't always neatly conform to the Greco-Roman or even 21st century modern philosophical worldview that we would hope it does. And so sometimes there are what seem like contradictions in the Bible, paradoxes. Um, the verbiage itself <clears throat> seems to describe uh, God is one way, but Jesus is another way. And it leads us to this conclusion that perhaps maybe um, there aren't a division of persons. Um, God really is only just one being. Uh, he's not broken up into three separate persons or anything like that. So when we're talking about appealing to mystery, which is one of the favorite ways of um, interacting with the Bible, mysterian language is what is called by theologians, then we're talking about an approach that on the one hand is is grand, it's broad, it it's it's it um it supersedes our ability to actually even describe God in his nature. That's what we mean by mystery. Language fails us. It's ineffable is what we describe. On the other hand, it's mysterious simply because God allowed the writers of the New Testament to pin their words in a certain proprietary way. A way that's not um conducive to Uh, say, philosophical discussions, but it's conducive to a representation of the truth from God's perspective. So God was pleased with the way the Bible turned out, but for us moderns, we read it and we're like, that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me logically. So with that being said, let me read something from Dr. James Anderson. That I talked about almost a year ago it was actually back in March of 2020, and it's it's in this appreciation of something known as Mysterian and this idea of there are um, uh, equivocations or contradictions in the Bible. That when I say equivocation, I mean language that seems ambiguous, and yet the Bible has been uh, uh, left for us to examine using this what seems like equivocations and some of it is meaning it's not written in the way that we would prefer it to be and so it it comes across as an equivocation to us right when we say jesus is god do you mean that jesus is a being known as god or jesus is the person known as god well depending on how you define that word god you're either going to have an agreement or a disagreement to the phrase, Jesus is God. You understand what I mean? So if in example A, Jesus is God means that Jesus is the being known as God, well, then most of Orthodox Christianity is going to affirm that Jesus is God and agree with that. Jesus is the being known as God. Amen. Yes, that's true. But if the word God here is being used by someone who uh, identifies God as the person of the Father, then if we say jesus is god and it's the same as saying jesus is the father the son is the father well then most orthodox christianity is going to disagree with that statement jesus is god are you understanding my example here it depends on how we define the phrase god the term god by itself is an equivocation it's ambiguous enough that we have to define it within context in order to either affirm the truth of what we're saying or reject the error of what someone else is saying. That's what we're talking about. So having said that, give me uh, like two or three minutes. Let me just read down through this real quick. This is a review. Is Yeshua God an appeal to mystery? Let me read this. This is in my commentary, so we're going backwards just a little bit. Dr. James Anderson of the School of Divinity of Edinburgh favors the approach of disambiguating the Trinity using nomenclature that is referred to by theologians as Mysterian. This is a review, so just bear with me. Anderson suggests that the mystery bound up in the language of the Bible in regards to understanding God's relationship to his son Jesus may in fact be qualified and expressed as Macru, a proprietary term that I believe Anderson himself coined. We'll we'll define Macru in just a bit here, so just hang with me. We will examine the biblical possibilities of this actual biblical term mystery a bit further down into this commentary. But for now, let's allow Anderson to explain this McCrew acronym in his own words. So let's read what this means. And I think I'll just read this tonight and then we'll look at the verses. And as I mentioned, the verses won't take very long. My basic proposal, this is Dr. Anderson, my basic proposal is that genuine theological paradoxes such as the Christian doctrine of the Trinity are best understood as merely apparent contradictions resulting from unarticulated equivocation, or M-A-C-R-U-E. So let me just stop and show you this again. M, merely. A, apparent. C, contradictions. R, resulting from. U, unarticulated. E, equivocation, my crew. So, here's what he's uh, talking about. I'll read his um, statement, and then if you don't, still don't understand, then I'll explain it to you. The logical conflict in question is rarely, if ever, explicit, using the example, the Son is God and the sun is not God, but may constitute a formal contradiction, as seems to be the case with the set of claims that a leading analytic Christian of Philosophers uh, analyzes. I got, I got a little typo there, off to fix. In other cases, the perceived contradiction will be merely implicit, but no less awkward for that. So, um, what he's simply talking about is that um, we have language of the Bible that seems to be contradicting itself at at times. But what we're really seeing is that it's not a contradiction in terminology. It's just merely an apparent contradiction. Meaning, it on the surface, it looks like it contradicts itself but it's only apparently contradictory based on the limited amount of information. So, um, let me let me keep reading. Moreover, these apparent contradictions in our formulations of Christian doctrine will be the product of theological theorizing from source data that also strikes us as implicitly contradictory. After all, the Bible nowhere makes any explicitly or formally contradictory statements about God's triune nature, and that's a very important point to make but rather supplies copious data about God from which we infer the sort of neat, succinct set of statements which serve as a formal statement of Orthodox Trinitarian belief, such as the Athanasian Creed. So again, what he's trying to alert us to the fact is that sometimes verbiage seems to contradict itself. Sometimes we have verses that seem to contradict one another or statements within our own formal uh, Christian creeds that seem to be contradictory based on uh, biblical data, but in the end, it could simply be the fact that we don't have enough data for our own modern um, uh, curiosity. In other words, the Bible is not deficient in and of itself, but if we put the Bible, we try to Push the Bible into a mold for which it was never designed to fit, then inevitably we're going to cry um, inconsistency, or we're going to try, we're going to cry um, illogical, or something to that effect. Let's keep reading. Furthermore, Anderson, uh, Dr. Anderson writes, these doctrinal inferences are not conducted in an epistemic vacuum, so to speak. They draw on a considerable amount of extra-biblical background knowledge and prior experience about the concepts and categories employed by the biblical text, including natural institutions about conceptual entailments and metaphysical necessities. As we will see, this fact has significant epistemic consequences. Now some of you are wondering, what in the world is epistemic? Let me just click on it and show you the the definition. Um, Epistemic, sorry about that, let me see if I can get my dictionary to pop up, there we go. Epistemic is related to the knowledge or the degree of validation. So we're talking about when we say epistemology, we're talking about a pursuit of separating truth from non-truth, or truth from hearsay, or um, trying to establish facts based on uh, data or something to that effect. Um, we're we're trying to <clears throat> Make sure we know what is truth, what is what is error, and the study of epistemology uh, takes itself up with trying to uh, differentiate what is truth and what is not. So, um, uh, let's see. I don't think I'll read this tonight. We'll maybe pick this up next week. Let's turn actually now to the the um uh, chart that we're looking at, and notice uh, tonight we're going to be looking at how that God is described as being everywhere in three particular passages. God the Father is portrayed as being everywhere in first Kings eight twenty seven. We'll look at that tonight. We'll also look at the Septuagint rendering in a moment. As far as the Son being portrayed as being everywhere or understanding the verse as implying that the Son is everywhere, right? Omnipresent, then we're going to look at Matthew 28, twenty eight twenty. And then when we talk about the Holy Spirit being omnipresent or everywhere, we'll look at Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. So that's where we're going. So let's jump right into it. First uh, verse is 1 Kings 8:27, Right here, let's just read the passage. It says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? This is Solomon asking the question. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that i've built notice solomon is 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 just pondering the idea that god is permitting him to build a temple and yet god can't be contained by the four walls of a temple that's what solomon is trying to um state and and solomon understands that that god can't be contained within the four walls of a building or six walls whatever whatever you want to describe there God is bigger than any structure that we can make for him. And remember what we talked about last week, however, God told the Israelites to build Him in a tabernacle so that he may dwell among them, or we could translate the Hebrew as dwell within them. How does God dwell among us? Well, he allows the structure to represent his personal presence here on earth, Even though we understand that God transcends that physical address, God is, in fact, beyond the confines of any tabernacle that Israel could have built for him. And yet, he still commanded them to build a tabernacle so that he could meet with them. So that, from an earthly perspective, they had a place where they could go and um, experience the manifest presence of God in a tangible way. The presence of God showed up. And manifests itself between the wings of the cherubim, like we read about in the book of Psalms. So, but 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 Solomon recognizes that God is bigger than any building that we can build, and yet he says, "I'll do it. I'll build to the. I'll build the building that you're asking me to do. Right? I'm, I'll be obedient to the commandment. But will indeed God dwell on the earth? Notice in the um, uh, Hebrew, it's asking, "Will God dwell on the earth? But if we compare to the Septuagint. It, where instead of saying when God will God indeed dwell on the earth, um, uh, uh, and the the root word the, the the Greek I'm sorry the Hebrew verb for dwell is the word yashav, uh, from when we get the familiar word yeshiva. It typically refers to sitting or or um, um, uh, staying for a prolonged period or something to that effect. Um, the Greek version includes a verb that uh, includes. Uh, dwelling with men and so uh, we can see here i don't i'm not going to read through all this greek for you but we can see that it uh the the verb here uh katoi uh is dwelling with god i'm sorry uh, dwelling with men right here anthropon epi upon the earth so the first question shows up in the septuagint is will god indeed dwell with men Upon the earth, so it kind of makes it a little bit more emphatic than just saying, "Will God will God indeed dwell on the earth?" Well, if we from the Hebrew, we could say, "Yeah, He dwelt on the earth in the tabernacle." But now we're saying in the Greek, "Will He indeed dwell with men upon the earth?" And of course, again, this is like a midrash. Last week we said, "Yeah, He actually will dwell with men. He will take make His dwelling within us in the person of His Son Yeshua in the fullness of His Spirit." So. Uh, In looking at the first passage, God is everywhere. He is everywhere. Uh, um, um, uh, Solomon's trying to to get us to understand that God can't dwell on the earth and be confined to the earthly walls. Why can't he? Because he's everywhere at the same time. Let's turn to the second passage. Again, this is going to be quick for this part tonight. Yeshua says in uh, 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 Matthew 28, and I'll start in verse 19 and move into verse 20 right here. Yeshua says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's a whole teaching there on the singular name and the, the, the yet the, the three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We could talk about that a different day, although eventually it will be a, a, a Trinitarian type discussion. Lots to talk about there, but I don't want to do that tonight. The verse in question is verse 20. Yeshua says, and teaching them, he's speaking to his disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, how could Yeshua be with all of us to the end of the age if Yeshua is just one man? And yet he says, surely I am with you always. He's speaking to the, to the eleven right? The disciples. And these verse, these words will also go on to apply to anyone who is a genuine follower of Yeshua. I am with you, Ariel, always to the very end of the age. But if Ariel lives in Korea and Yeshua is with me to the very end of the age, and yet Ariel is with those people who are listening and watching this commentary in other parts of the world, those who are genuine believers in Messiah, he's with them always to the end of the age, then how is it that Yeshua is is also everywhere at the same time. That's the point that's being made. Isn't it God who's with us, who's everywhere? Yes, God is everywhere. Aren't we going to find out, read later on, that the Spirit is everywhere? Yes, the Spirit is omnipresent. But in some mysterious way, Yeshua himself is saying that I am with you always to the very end of the age. Of course, we understand that the mystery that we're talking about is that Yeshua, speaking as very God, is with all of us, everywhere at the same time you sure the human being as far as i can tell is limited to being in one place at one point in time his body can't be physically spread, I suppose it could, but that would look really weird, right? Spread out across the entire cosmos, right? His his physical body. I, I don't know that he, his body is capable of stretching to those dimensions. I'm not going to discount and say that he couldn't do it, right? You know, who am I to say? What, is, what his physical body can and cannot do? But to my understanding of reading the scriptures and tasting the taking them at face value, then the answer is no. His physical body doesn't uh, have those types of contortions, uh, opportunities Opportunities available to him. But to the degree that the Spirit of Messiah takes up residence within us, and it's the Spirit of God who is Messiah, who is the Holy Spirit Himself, that takes up residency within each and every believer simultaneously, no matter where we are at in God's creation, then yes, Yeshua is with everyone everywhere. And the third verse, Psalm, the third passage, Psalm verse uh, chapter 139, verses 7 through 10. Uh, The psalmist says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? How is his his response? What does he say? Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Notice that wherever the psalmist goes, the spirit of God is. The spirit of God is is everywhere at the same time, no matter where the psalmist could go. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, and I might add, you are there. And in verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So no matter where, and this is poetry, no matter where the psalmist makes his abode, whether it's in heaven or hell or across the sea, the Spirit of God will be there. Why? Why? It's because we know what the psalmist knows. That the Spirit of God is everywhere. The Spirit of God is not confined to one location. As if the Spirit of God could not um, traverse beyond the walls of the, the, the tabernacle or the temple that was being built by uh, Israel. If the Spirit was only confined to that location, well then if the psalmist moved went up to heaven, then the Spirit wouldn't be there, because he'd be stuck on earth in the tabernacle or the temple. Or if he if the psalmist went down the shoal or traveled across the sea, well then the spirit wouldn't be there because the psalmist would be moving away from where the spirit was at. But we understand this, right? So in the end, when we go back and look at those three verses in this table, God the Father is everywhere. He's omnipotent he's omnipresent. God the Son is everywhere as well, and God the Holy Spirit likewise is everywhere. And that'll do it for our discussion for tonight, Exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn now to the liturgy. We're going to read uh, Deuteronomy 6, 20-25, as I mentioned that we are going to do last week, and then we'll read the Romans 14, 10-13 passages, so the liturgy is just a little bit longer. Let's start in verse 20 of Deuteronomy chapter 6, right here. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? I've read this liturgy in the past. It's one of my favorite passages, and that's why I'm reading it again, because of the truths that are contained therein. Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of egypt with a mighty hand verse 22 and the lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against egypt and against pharaoh and all his household before our eyes verse 23 and he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that He swore to give to our forefathers i'm sorry to our fathers verse 24 and the lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the lord our god for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day and the final verse 25 and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the lord our god as he has commanded us as i've mentioned in so many times in the past notice that god is enjoining upon israel to do all of the commandments and that the doing of the commandments the practicality of it um is that it will result in a righteous lifestyle that is recognized by god this directly applies to israel as a whole as a people group and it would apply to anyone whether you actually have genuine faith in god or not through his son messiah yeshua the practicality of keeping the commandments obviously should lead you to a faith in messiah but It has to start somewhere. So the day you start keeping the commandments is perhaps not the same day that you place your faith in Jesus. But once you start keeping the commandments, you're on the journey of righteousness. You're on the path of righteousness. And God wants you to stay on that journey until you reach the goal of the Torah, which is the teacher of righteousness, which is Yeshua. But the point I'm trying to highlight is that the journey is also important. Stay on the path of righteousness. It will be righteousness for us, Moshe says, in no unquestionable uh, terms, in no uncertain terms. And this is a practical type of righteousness that will eventually dead end or lead to or culminate in the forensic righteousness or the spiritual righteousness or the eternal righteousness that's only offered in Messiah Yeshua. Omain, Omain. Let's go back and read the Hebrew as well. Starting over here in verse 20 the hebrew says ki yishoch vinkam Mahar, lemor Mahaidot, aidot va hukim va mishpatim asher adonai elohenu et chem verse 21 va La lavincha avadim hayenu lefaroh be mitraim ve um enu adonai mitraim Bial Hazaka chazaka verse 22 Vae Adonai otot, u'moftim Gdolin, Veraim Bimitraim, Bufaro Uho beto leine, I'm sorry, Bufaro Uho beto leine nu. Verse twenty three The Otanu, Hotzi, Misham, Limaan, Havi. Otanu Latet Lanu Et Haaretz asher Nishba La Avotenu. Verse 24. Vaitsa Adonai La Asot et Kol Ha hokim Ha La Yira et Adonai Elohinu Latov Lanu Kol Hayamim La Chayotenu kayom and the last verse verse twenty five Utihelanu. Ki nishmor lazot, et kol hazot, asher tzi Let's turn now to the Greek or the Apostolic Scriptures, the New Testament passage, Romans 14, 10 through 13, like we studied and we're continuing to study, starting right there. Paul says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Let me stop and interject. Notice that in my understanding of this passage, if the word brother here, the adelphon, uh, is broad enough for Gentiles to understand that it applies to covenant Jews, unbelieving Jews, a part of national Israel, they're, they're covenant keeping on the natural level, so they're covenant brothers. But at the same time, notice that Paul uses the word brother to both groups why do you pass judgment on your brother probably speaking to the um uh, uh, non-christian jews or you why you despise your brother probably speaking to the christians of the group the the gentiles notice that if my purport, proposal of the word brother is accurate then not only is paul challenging the gentile christians to um Apply the term brother to the uh, uh, non Christian Jew, but at the same time, watch this Paul is challenging the non Christian Jew to allow the Christian Gentile as his brother. Isn't that challenging? You know, think about it. Does the synagogue consider the church as brothers, covenant brothers? I mean, they have a genuine faith in God. It's the same God, same monotheistic God, same scriptures of Israel, at least in Paul's day, before the New Testament was canonized and put into a book. Right, I understand modern Judaism today rejects the New Testament, but to the degree that Old Testament, uh, that the Old Testament is is as um, relevant to Christians today, isn't it the same Old Testament that the Jews are carrying? It's not a different book. So there must be some brotherhood relationship being shared between an unbelieving Jew and a believing Christian, a believing Gentile to the degree that there's covenant brotherhood that we can talk about. That's the challenge. All right, sorry to interrupt my liturgy there. Let's keep reading. Verse 11, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. Verse 12, So then each of us is to give an account of himself to God. And verse 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Let's go back and read the uh, the Greek of that real quick. Starting over on that side of the page. The Greek says, Su de ti krines tan adelfan su e kai su ti exuthenes tan adelphon su pantes gar parastesamethato u. Verse 11. Gigraptai gar zo ego legei kurias hati emoi kampse pan ganu kai pasa glosa exalama gesatai Exa malagasatai to theo, o. Verse twelve. Ada un hemon, peri hiautu, dose doce to the o. And verse thirteen. Miketi un alelus crinomen, alatuta tuta malon to me tithenai. I'm sorry, tithenai, praskama to adelfo e scandalon. And that'll be the liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the short little video. Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word, I'm your host Torah Teacher Ariel, where every week or so we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. A most important passage from the book of James Jacob is the focal point of our short video series today. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Torah is God's teaching to men about righteousness what it is and how it behaves the true believer that is anyone who is redeemed by the blood of the lamb does not do in order to become he does because he is what God has made him the righteousness of God in Messiah thus Yaakov writes I will show you my faith by my works that's from James 2:18 that we just read earlier the true Torah is the walk of faith faith, and rest in the finished work of Messiah. Blessings and curses might therefore be woodenly labeled the expected consequences of our heart condition. If we follow trust and obedience, blessings will follow us. But... If we harden our hearts and pursue doubt and disobedience, then the Torah instructs us that not only will the blessings be withheld, but that the curses will actually pursue us instead of the blessing. See Deuteronomy 28.45 To be sure, we don't deserve any blessings at all. Yet God, in His mercy, sees fit to grant blessings, provided we continue in His covenant with a heart that is governed by genuine trust i.e. faith. And that'll do it for the study tonight. I trust that everything was uh, in order and that you're able to watch the video. Um, those of you who were with me in the live class, if you weren't able to watch it, just wait till I upload the video to YouTube, and you'll be able to watch it in its entirety there in case there were any technical difficulties. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name and thank you for the study. I thank you for the participants. I thank you for the um, challenge that awaits us as we study your words. We know that we are not going to arrive at a perfect understanding, and yet we must press in. We must continue to seek your face. We must continue to avail ourselves of your precious Holy Spirit if we were ever to um, arrive at any understanding that allows us to uh, implement the words that we're reading. We're not studying for study's sake. We are studying in order to do, in order to teach others to study and, and um do so thank you lord that um you're challenging us that you're um uh, um pushing us up to a higher standard you're challenging us you're you're um exhorting us to to come up higher to continue to uh turn away from sin to continue to um um forgive one another to continue to walk in righteousness um uh being uh, exemplary of the um of the position that we hold as ambassadors of your kingdom help us to have a burden for those around us who don't know the truth um seeking ways to reach out to them to witness to them to bring a word of comfort or encouragement uh to people around us uh, in an effort to to um create a dialogue where we can share the gospel with them uh, give us holy boldness um keep us protected keep us safe from this pandemic uh, give us wisdom in the decisions that we make particularly in regards to um to government to politics to loyalties to our affiliations um and uh, the 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 the, the goings on in the world around us. For indeed, we're living in times that are perilous, and we are not going to make it unless we rely on your precious Holy Spirit. So, continue to go with us, and we'll go with you, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Beshem Yeshua, amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer.